Well, I think most of us would love to know the future. We'd love to know what's going to happen tomorrow in our lives or our kids' lives or our country's life. We want to know the future. And in fact, there are really entire industries in our country organized around helping us know the future. So there are financial prognosticators who say they can tell you what the stock market will do tomorrow or next week or next year. And so you can invest accordingly. There are sports predictors, people who say they can tell you how many games the Aggies will win this fall and hopefully provide you hope and peace and comfort in the midst of tumult. All right, one of the more interesting industries that has sprung up largely in the United States around this idea of predicting the future is the fortune cookie industry. Right, when you go to a Chinese restaurant, you get this little cookie with a little paper inside. It may surprise you to know uh, that is primarily an American deal. Most places around the world, even most Asian restaurants around the world, you don't get these. There are three billion fortune cookies made every year in the United States. I ran across a website that had some of the more interesting predictions that people have found in their fortune cookies. Uh, one said, you laugh now, wait until you get home. It's a little ominous. You will be hungry again in one hour. An alien of some sort will be appearing to you shortly. That's kind of an exciting one. Uh, A nice cake is waiting for you, which is great because then you don't have to eat that cookie. And the one that I loved the most simply said, run. And that was it. I thought, what a terrifying fortune to get. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how terrible it's going to be, but I better take off running. All of us would like to know the future, we think. So when we think about tomorrow, we say, boy, wouldn't it be nice if I could know what job I'm going to have? Maybe if you are unmarried, you say, it'd be great if I could know who I'm going to marry or if I'm going to marry at all. If you have kids, maybe you want to be able to look forward into the future and say, what will their life be like? Most of us experience anxiety for our kids' futures from time to time. If you have a 401k, you would like to know the future and where to move those funds. Perhaps you'd like to go back in time and know what you know now. Uh, We would like to know the future often because we believe that if we could know it, maybe we could do something about it. Maybe if I knew the future, I could uh, change things. But the reality is that knowledge of the future without any real power to change it is worthless, isn't it? It's hopeless. If I know what's going to happen, but I can't do anything then maybe I'd rather not know. But as we look at the scripture, what we see is that God not only knows it, but he controls it. And over and over and over again, throughout the history of his people, throughout the history of Israel, and then as we move into the New Testament, we hear God saying to us in his word, I know the future, I control the future, trust me, not only for today, but for tomorrow. We are often a people filled with anxiety and dread because we lose sight of the fact that God controls the future. We're going to look at Daniel 7 this morning. Daniel 7 is a passage in which we read about a vision that God gave to this prophet Daniel. Daniel is living in Babylon in exile far away from the promised land. Uh, And if you remember last week, we looked at a story that involved three of his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they had the courage to only worship God, to not bow down to the idol that the king had made. And what gave them that courage in part was their understanding of God's power, that God was powerful and that even in death, God was in charge of history, that he was strong enough to overturn kingdoms. 
and he held him in his hand. This week, as we look at Daniel 7, we see this guy, Daniel, who has been living in Babylon now, as he writes Daniel 7, for about 55 years. Daniel 7 was probably written in 550 BC. Daniel first arrived in Babylon in 605 BC. He was a part of the first wave of deportations that Nebuchadnezzar carried out from Jerusalem. He was one of the young noblemen who was carried off into exile. Now he spent virtually his whole life in exile. He got there when he was a teenager. Now he's probably around 70 years old and he's lived his whole life away from Jerusalem, away from the temple. And this is significant to Daniel because of what God had promised the Jewish people. God had promised them this land. He had promised through David an eternal kingdom where his king would reign forever. And here sits Daniel, an old man, having lived his life with no sign of the promises coming true. And as you read Daniel 7, you're going to see God come and give a vision to a man much like you and me who lives in uncertainty and anxiety. And he says, where is God? When will he arrive and accomplish all that he has planned, all that he has promised? You and I really do live in a world that seems filled with a great deal of tragedy and fear. Maybe that you look at the political state of our nation or you look at the wars happening across the world and you worry. Will the rest of my life, will the lives of my children be like mine? What's going to happen to them? You worry, will I have enough to feed myself tomorrow, next week, a year from now? What if this place becomes a place that is hostile to those who proclaim Jesus? And we worry. And what we're going to see in Daniel 7 is God insistently saying to Daniel, I control the future. And he gives Daniel some detail about what's going to happen in the future so Daniel can see that his kingdom is going to come. And the kingdom of God will eclipse and defeat every other kingdom. And so we can trust him. So even in the midst of the uncertainty and the anxiety and the tragedy, the message of Daniel 7 is really the same message that we see Paul proclaiming in the New Testament over and over and over again, which is even when there is death, even when there is pain, we don't grieve as those who have no hope, but as those who know the hope of resurrection and the coming kingdom. So we're going to look at Daniel 7 and see this exhortation and reassurance to the prophet. Start in verse 1 of Daniel 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed. Then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, arise, devour much meat. 
After this, I kept looking and behold, another one like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads and dominion was given to it. After this, I kept looking in the night vision and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had a large, had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. So the first thing Daniel sees are four beasts. Now, Daniel's going to say twice throughout this vision that he's alarmed, he's exhausted, he's perplexed. You may feel the same way after reading those eight verses. What in the world is going on? He sees these four beasts. He looks out in the sea and he sees the winds begin to move across the ocean and these beasts arise. Now, the sea was often a place of chaos and fear. That's often what it represents in the scripture. So uh, when you look at Genesis 1, you see God's spirit hovering over the waters and they're formless and they're void and they're chaotic. And then God begins to speak and he arranges the chaos into order and he pushes back the sea. And here in Daniel 7, you see the winds of heaven moving across the water. The word wind in Hebrew and the word spirit are the same word. And just as the spirit of God hovers over the waters in Genesis 1 and creates order. Now the spirit of God moves in the waters and creates a plan for the future that he shows to Daniel. Four beasts come up. The first beast is the lion with the wings of an eagle. That beast no doubt represents Babylon. We know that because this is not the first vision Daniel has had of these four kingdoms or that he has seen. If you go back to Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a vision of a statue that represented these four kingdoms. And the first one is Babylon itself, who ruled the ancient Near East from 605 BC to 539. The fact that he has wings and then the wings are clipped and he's made to stand up like a man probably represents Nebuchadnezzar that you see in Daniel 4 descending into madness and then God raises him up. So he has a human mind that praises the God of heaven. So he sees this first one that represents Babylon. Daniel is writing in the first year of Belshazzar, by the way, which is around 550 BC. Belshazzar, Daniel didn't know it, but Belshazzar ended up being the last of the Babylonian kings. If you go back to Daniel 5, Belshazzar is the guy that you see sitting at this big banquet. Remember, he's sitting at this big banquet and there's a feast. And right in the middle of the feast, this big hand emerges. The hand of God and writes on the wall, Mini, Mini, Tekel, Upharsin. And in a nutshell, the message is, Belshazzar, you're finished. Your kingdom is done. Well, now Daniel backtracks a few years to when he receives this vision. That Babylon is going to end. And after Babylon comes a second animal. A bear that has two sides. One side representing the Medians. And one side representing the Persians. Who ruled the area together. But one side is higher than the other. The Persians were stronger. And they ruled from 539 BC to 331 BC. And the most famous Persian king that you may have heard of. Was Cyrus of Persia. And the reason we think of Cyrus is because in 538 BC, Cyrus is the one that gave a decree that said all of the Jews can go back to their land. Some 70 years after they had been exiled, he says they can go back and they begin to go back. That's Persia. And so this bear devours the kingdoms that come before, all of the kingdoms that come before and rules the ancient East, including 
Israel. And then another beast emerges, a leopard that has four wings and four heads, and that no doubt represents Greece. Alexander the Great, in, by 331 BC, had really conquered most of the known world. He was 25 years old. College students, you're super behind. I hate to tell you this. Alexander the Great had conquered most of the known world. By the time he was 25, he died when he was in his early 30s, around 323, and then his kingdom was divided up among four generals. That's why this beast has four wings and four heads. And the four generals ruled the area, including Israel and Palestine, until around 63 BC when the fourth beast emerges, and that's Rome. And Rome will rule over Israel until eventually Titus destroyed the temple in the city in AD 70. And the fourth beast is terrible, and he devours all the others. So Daniel sees these beasts coming up, and the message that he gets is, uh, Daniel, the nation of Israel, God's people, they are going to be punted back and forth like a football for hundreds of years. That's not very encouraging. You think, what must it be like to live in a country, to live in a place that just gets tossed from ruler to ruler, from kingdom to kingdom? And I was pondering that this week, and then I thought, I know exactly what it's like because I live in Texas. You've been to Six Flags. It's more than just an amusement park. Look at the flags. How many kingdoms have ruled over this piece of property? At least six, right? Spain, France, Mexico, the Republic of Texas, the Confederacy, the United States. And we're not unique, by the way. Kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall. And we've been a part of the United States for quite some time now. But no kingdom except God's kingdom lasts forever. And so Daniel sees these kings coming and going and coming and going. And as you would imagine, this is alarming to him and perplexing. But what he sees next, no doubt provides some comfort. Verses 9 through 12. Look with me at verse 9. I kept looking until thrones were set up And the ancient of days took his seat. His vesture was like white snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. A river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him and myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted to them for an appointed period of time. So as Daniel looks and he sees all these kingdoms fighting, all of a sudden he sees a big old throne and he says the ancient of days sits down. Now this is clearly God himself sits down on his throne to judge all the nations. And it says, as he sits on this throne, there's all of these thousands and thousands and thousands of angels and people before him. And his hair is white like snow. White hair represents his agedness, his eternality. This is the only place in the Bible where he's referred to as the ancient of days. And the idea is he goes back before any of these kingdoms. And the implication is he will go on even longer than any of them. His white hair represents also his wisdom in judgment. Uh, Last week, I overheard my wife talking to an old friend of ours who had not seen me in some time. And I overheard this friend say, boy, Matt's hair has started to turn gray. And I heard that and I wanted to turn and say, no, it it is white. And it represents deep, deep reservoirs of wisdom 
from God. The Ancient of Days has hair that is white like snow, whiter than anybody's hair in this room because he goes back forever and he goes on forever. He has white clothes, which represent purity and holiness. There is no sin or wickedness. There's no false judgment in him. In the New Testament, when the disciples see Jesus transfigured before God, he's white, shining white, Mark says, whiter than any launderer could launder it. And the saints who come back with Jesus in Revelation 19 are dressed in white robes. It represents the purity of God. And there's fire coming forth that represents that he sits in judgment. Fiery wheels, which probably means that God can go anywhere he wants. He can do whatever he wants. He can go here. He can go there. And he sees all the kingdoms of the earth. And fire emerges. And that fire represents the judgment of God. Like it does in 2 Thessalonians 1, with flaming fire, he will mete out punishment on those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. So the Ancient of Days sits down on his throne and Daniel watches while all of these kings have been devouring each other and eating each other up. And then the Ancient of Days sits down and he grabs this most terrible beast and he tosses it into the fire. And then he looks at the other three and he says, you guys sit down. And he lets them live for a little while longer but he takes away their authority. When God takes his throne, all the other kingdoms fade away. I have a chair at my house that Shannon bought me for our 10 year anniversary. And I love this chair. It is a nice deep brown. It it extends above my head. It's very plush. It has big plush arms and it reclines. And uh, I love the chair. The problem is that so do my children and so does my cat and the dog and everybody tries to get in my chair. Um, And so I'll come home from work and I might see something uh, sort of like this. This is my son. (laughs) And you can tell he is dressed in power and might Because he might have an idea that I'm going to come in and do what I often do, which is when I come home, look, I don't reserve a whole lot of spaces in the house for just me, but this is mine. It is my little corner. And I don't have that many possessions either that people come over and say, I want one like that. And I say, I know you do. That's why I asked for this chair, right? And so I move them out of my chair and I sit down. Now, even though it's my chair, I am not as sovereign as I'd like to be. There are days that I actually lose that battle and someone else sits in my chair. When God takes his seat, though, nobody stays seated. God sits down and he pushes all of these other kingdoms off their thrones and he says, it's mine. Your corner of the world is mine. That corner of the world is mine. Jerusalem is mine. Israel is mine. All the nations are mine. And he sits down and he begins to judge those who have opposed him. And he takes this kingdom and he's going to rule over a kingdom that's going to last forever. And yet what Daniel sees next is perhaps even more striking. Look at verses 13 to 14. It says, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom 
That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So the Ancient of Days takes his seat. And he gets all of the kingdoms of the world to move out of the way. And he claims this kingdom. And then the Son of Man appears. And the Ancient of Days hands over the kingdom to the Son of Man. And so this person, this son of man who comes up, who emerges, as you know, as you read through the Bible, of course, you know, this is the Messiah, the chosen king of God. And what God is telling Daniel is when the ancient of days sits down, he's going to conquer all the kingdoms and then he'll hand them all off to the Messiah, who is Jesus. To really get a, a picture of how significant this is for Daniel You have to go back and look at some of the promises that God made to David and to the nation of Israel. As you look at 2 Samuel 7, there's a covenant that God made with David. And he said, when your days, David, are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And as you read through the Psalms and as you read the prophets, they came to understand this passage as a promise to David that one of his descendants would have the right to reign in Jerusalem forever on God's throne. And every successive king who came along, of course, the question was, is this the son? Is this The son is this, the son, and all of them failed in one way or another until the son of man. Psalm two says, I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth, your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Psalm 2 is this beautiful psalm in which God is in heaven and all the nations on earth are raging and they're fighting against one another. And God, and it says, God looks down at them and he laughs. And then he terrifies them in his anger and he takes their kingdoms away and he gives them to the son. And he says to his son, They belong to you, and you rule over them all. This title, Son of Man, by the way, was Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospels. More than 80 times, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. One of the most notable was at his trial before the Jewish leaders, before his crucifixion. Mark chapter 14, Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. Now, if you were a first century reader who was familiar with the Old Testament, this would jump out at you immediately, wouldn't it? This is exactly what's described in Daniel 7. The son of man comes in on the clouds and then God gives him the reign over the entire earth. This is why Jesus' response makes the Jewish leaders so mad. I used to wonder about this title, son of man. Does it mean that Jesus is saying that he's just a guy? He just, he is a son of man like you or I? No, what he is saying is this. I am that one to whom the ancient of days is going to give the kingdom. What Daniel saw, that was me. He is making a claim to be the only rightful king of the world and the son of God himself. It's a divine title. And Jesus used it over and over and over again. And so what Daniel sees is that the ancient of days pushes everybody aside 
and gives it to his son. All of us, when we were kids, probably at some point played that old game, King of the Hill. You know, there might be a dirt mound and a bunch of kids try to scrabble up it and you get up at the top and you're the king for a minute until someone else comes and knocks you off and they scramble up it. I don't know if they let kids play this anymore. It's kind of a violent game, but we used to play it all the time. Imagine you're playing King of the Hill and you get up to the top and then someone else gets up to the top and someone else gets up to the top and then a a, a grown-up shows up and he says, hey, this is my land. It's my hill. Everybody get aside. My boy's sitting on top. And he puts his son at the very top. And he says, all of you go home except you, the really mean kid. I'm putting you in jail forever. That's what we have in Daniel 7. God gives the kingdom to his son. Now, Daniel sees all of this. And of course, this is a vision to him that would have been unbelievably encouraging living in Babylon, far away from the promised land. That the Messiah who comes from Israel will rule the world. Babylon won't last forever. In fact, they were already fading. Medo-Persia won't last forever. Greece won't last forever. Rome won't last forever. No kingdom will last forever except God's kingdom. And God will fulfill his promises. Now, understandably, this is a difficult vision for Daniel to understand. And so what you see next is that Daniel approaches one of the angels to ask, what does this mean? Look at verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. I approached one of those who were standing by and began asking him the exact meaning of all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings who will arise from the earth. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. Now, at first glance, this looks like a very uh, short answer to a very complicated question. Daniel says to the angel, can you explain this? And the angel says, yeah, there's four kingdoms. And uh, after that kingdom, God's going to take over and he's going to hand over the kingdom to the saints of the highest one. And you go, okay, that was a pretty uh, short answer to all of these beasts and all these things that are going on. It kind of reminds me of if you've got little kids, when they say something like, uh, where do babies come from, right? And you say, from the hospital, right? Because you're hoping that that will satisfy the uh, question for the moment. And then they ask more questions and more questions. And you think, how much detail are we going to get to here? So the angel gives Daniel a short answer, but as you look at that short answer further, what you see is that there's something new here, and that is that the kingdom is going to be given to the saints of the highest one. See, what's going to happen is God will defeat all the kingdoms of the earth, hand over authority to Jesus, and that Jesus will turn to those who trust in him, all of his saints, and say, now you reign with me. And you can see Daniel going, you mean that even I, far away from Jerusalem, a nobleman who was displaced from God's land, a guy who's lived his whole life in exile, even I am going to reign with the Son of Man. Yeah. And see, Daniel's problem, his dilemma is not really all that different from ours. Just like us, he looked at the political realities of his world. He looked at these terrible kingdoms that emerged. He lived in a culture that didn't honor God. And he said, where are you? And God said, I'm coming. And those who know me 
regardless of what others may say, are on the right side of history. And Jesus will hand the reign of the world to his saints. Now, Daniel, understandably, still wants to know more information. So he asks an angel more exactly, who is the fourth beast? And in verse 23, the angel says this, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. As for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings will arise and another will arise after them. And he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the most high and wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times and in law and they will be given into his hands for a time, times, and half a time. But the court will sit for judgment and his dominion will be taken away, annihilated, and destroyed forever. Then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions will serve and obey him. And so the angel says, look, that that last beast is a a big kingdom and out of him is going to emerge this boastful, angry, arrogant king. And he's going to reign for a time, times and half a times. That is three and a half years. He's going to rule the world in terror. And then God will defeat him and hand his kingdom over to the saints who will reign forever and ever and ever. Now to get a picture of how this comes into play in the scripture. When is all this going to happen? What's all this going to look like? It helps to see that this beast comes back again in the book of Revelation. Keep your finger in Daniel and go over for a moment to Revelation chapter 13. Last book in the Bible, Revelation chapter 13, starting in verse 1. And the dragon, who we know in Revelation is Satan, the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea, having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. That should ring a bell to you. And the dragon gave him his power and his throne and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain and his fatal wound was healed and the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast and they worshiped the dragon because he gave his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him. There was given to him a mouth speaking arrogant words and blasphemies and authority to act for 42 months. That's the three and a half years again. And he opened his mouth in blasphemies against God to blaspheme his name in his tabernacle. That is those who dwell in heaven. That beast that emerges in Revelation 13, if you know Daniel, that would immediately jump out. You go, here's a beast that has components of all of those other beasts. And he is the Antichrist who emerges at the end to speak against God, to blaspheme God and try to rule in God's place. And he's like these other kingdoms probably because he's devoured and destroyed them. And he is as cruel and vicious and mean as they are. And so John describes this beast that he sees and says there's going to be this beast and God will give him, allow him authority to rule the world for three and a half years in terror. So that beast, we're going to see him again. Now, what's astounding, even more so, is that in Daniel 9, go back to Daniel for a moment, God gives Daniel some very specific information about when this beast is coming and what he's going to look like. Daniel 9, verse 24, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city 
to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the Prince, there will be seven weeks. That is seven sevens and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. And he will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week, that is three and a half into it, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. And so Daniel gets this vision about this beast that's coming and about what's going to happen. And essentially what God's, what the angel Gabriel says to him is there are 77, that is 490 years. Now we're thinking in terms of the Jewish calendar, 490 years for everything to wrap up and history to come to its conclusion. He says after 69 of those 70, the Messiah will be cut off. That is the Messiah is going to die. Now what's amazing about this is you look at history. He says from the decree to return, to the land until the Messiah is cut off for 69 weeks, 69 weeks. That is uh, as you add it up in the Gregorian calendar, which is what we follow. It's 483 years from 538 BC until the time that Jesus died, 33 AD is those 69 weeks. And in fact, as you add up the numbers in Daniel, it comes out to a particular date in 33 AD. And then it says after those 69 weeks, The 70th week comes after the people of the prince who is to come. That is the people of this beast destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened, by the way, in AD 70 when Titus came in and destroyed the city and destroyed the sanctuary. So we see a delay between the 69th week and 70th week. And then there's the last week, this last seven years. And he says during that seven years, halfway through at the three and a half year point, the Antichrist will emerge. He'll put a stop to all sacrifice. He will persecute God's people. And then at the end of that period of time, God's going to destroy him and set up his kingdom. The kingdom that was promised to David so many years ago. This is given with astounding accuracy. In fact, to the point that as you read commentaries, liberal scholars will say this, this has to have been written very late, very late. They don't believe that Daniel was written in the 6th century. And the only reason that many more liberal scholars deny it is because of the detail of these prophecies. But if God is capable of raising Jesus from the dead, I think these prophecies can be accurate. Many, many years before the death of Jesus, Daniel sees this is what's going to happen. And then the events still to come are laid out throughout the book of Revelation, throughout the rest of Scripture. There's a thousand-year kingdom you see in Revelation 20. After this seven years, the beast is cast into the lake of fire, and God establishes his thousand-year reign on earth. At the end of that thousand-year reign, Satan himself is cast into the lake of fire. God sits on his throne, and he judges the unbelieving dead. And the believing dead rise from the ground, and they reign with Jesus. And in Revelation 21 and 22, you see heaven coming to earth. And after that thousand years are ended, after all rebellion is crushed, God reigns with Jesus and the saints forever and ever and ever and ever.
and the new heavens and the new earth. So God pulls back the curtain for Daniel. He says, Daniel, I know you're far from home. I know things look terrible right now. I know you've lived your life in exile. But the son of man is coming. And here's what it's going to look like. When I was in high school, I was in the band. I was in the marching band, actually, and played saxophone. And uh, very early in the year, the first thing that we would often do is they would show you your routes. You would start in one spot and then they'd say, okay, march to this other spot. Now march to the next spot. And over a 10 minute show, you'd obviously have dozens of these routes that you would go through. And as you were down on the uh, parking lot or eventually on the field, uh, your only objective was to go from this spot to this spot and try to maintain kind of an even distance uh, with the people next to you. So you didn't crash into anybody as you crossed other lines. You didn't want to crash into them. But most of what you knew was you could just see this level here and you saw all these people, but you didn't see the whole big picture. So you just walked your route. But our band director was up in a tower and he had a megaphone deal and he would call down instructions. Matt, move just a little over this way. Uh, You move just a little this way. Uh, Try not to run into those people this time, right? And he would call these instructions because he could see the whole picture. And so occasionally he would let us go up there one by one during practice so we could look down and see everything. And the reason that he did that was so that when we were down on the field and he called instructions, we would trust him because we knew he could see every curve, every player, every person. God gives Daniel a bird's eye view of history. And he says, you can trust me. I know every play. I know every person. You're in exile, but you're not alone. And you have not been forgotten. The writers of the New Testament often would pick up this sort of exile theme. Peter picks it up. John picks it up. This idea that we are strangers. We are aliens. We are far from home. And the encouragement that is always given is to hope in the one who gave the son of man who died and rose again to demonstrate that his kingdom is coming. And so we don't have to be afraid for the future because God already has it written. No matter what happens tomorrow, no matter what happens to our country, no matter what happens in the world, The ending is written. And so our task is to stay on our route and trust the one who has written history that he's bringing it to the conclusion he desires. So as we close, what do we do? Well, we pray that we'll have God's perspective of history, that we'll be able to look at a passage like Daniel. We'll look at the book of Revelation and not necessarily think this is just a bunch of irrelevant details, but instead we'll see God has given us a perspective on the future so we can trust him. I pray that we will look toward his kingdom because Jesus is risen from the dead and know that there is no kingdom, there is no evil, there is no power that will prevail against him. And then we pray that his kingdom will come soon. I love the end of Revelation after uh, God shows John this entire vision. And then Jesus says, I'm coming back quickly. And I love John's response. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.
That's how Jesus taught his disciples to pray, by the way, was your kingdom come. So we pray for it and we long for it in the midst of anxiety and uncertainty and tragedy and death and all of these things that cause us to fear. And we say, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We're going to celebrate communion here in a moment. And as the men go back to prepare, let me just leave you with a couple of thoughts. The key one as we celebrate communion is this, that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ are not only payment for our sin, not only proof that we can have eternal life, but they are also an indication that the kingdom of God is coming. As Jesus rose again and then ascended into the heavens, Jesus told his disciples, one day I'm going to come back. And you see that happen in Revelation 19 and 20. He comes back on a white horse. And you know who's with him? The saints who have trusted in his death and resurrection. If you believe in Jesus this morning, that'll be you. Participating in his kingdom. Helping him rule the earth as he sets up his kingdom. If you don't know Jesus this morning, what the scripture communicates to us is this, that Jesus died to take away our sin and he rose again so we can have eternal life and we can know we have eternal life if we trust in him. And so as we celebrate communion, what we do for those who have trusted Jesus is we look back to his death on our behalf and then we look forward to the day when he'll return and we say, I trust you to manage not only today, but all of the details of the future. Would you pray with me before we celebrate communion? Father, thank you so much for your word. We're grateful for it and we pray we would trust you and remember all that you did in Jesus Christ to bring us life. In Jesus' name, amen.